0: Today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. You're
1: tired of waiting through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player? Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at FretboardBiology.com. Hi there,
0: you're listening to the Guitar Speak Podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling, and this is the show that I produce in Sydney, Australia. It's a show with two types of episodes. There are our deep dive interviews and also our Iconic Albums series. Now, today, we have a great interview for you. I'm joined by Rob Rhodes. Now, Rob, you might know, is one of the co-hosts of the Iconic Albums series. But today, we've placed him in the hot seat. And I'm going to interview Rob and find out all about his career. Rob's a great guitar player, fantastic musician, and also really has the the business side of things down. So today's interview has a wealth of knowledge and lots of good guitar talk too. Rob Rhodes, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast.
1: Hi, Matt. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me today.
0: Oh, definitely, man. Now, our listeners, um, we know you. We're getting to know you over the last few months. Um, as we speak, we've launched 15 of the iconic albums. We'll probably be up to 16 or 17 by the time this conversation is, is shared. So yeah, we've, we've loved getting to know some of your favourite records and of course all the the conversations that that spears off into, which has been really cool. But great to have you on the show, so I can just ask you some questions. Yeah,
1: no, it's it's been really fun to be a part of and uh, just keep you busy you know the research for yeah. those albums and trying to find fun facts and <laughs> even as um, recently as the last one like flexing my comedy chops it's just uh, giving <laughs> giving me something to focus on other than just gigs and everything else that's going on in the world so no that's been a lot of fun man thanks
0: yeah oh cool it's been yeah it's been awesome you've been on my list for a while outside of the iconic albums as well we've known each other I guess online maybe for a couple of years, I guess, yeah. um, You know, through you following the podcast and then me following your music career. But, Rob, you are a super interesting guy in that you've had so many angles in the live performance industry. I mean, at the heart of it, I think your passion is obviously playing music and shredding on guitar and fronting <laughs> bands and rocking out. But you, you do have a unique space and you've got your business chops together. And I know you work really hard. So I, I love that angle. So I'd like to dig into some of that as well as obviously all the guitar talk. So Yeah, cool. Where do we where do we start, man? So you tell me about your band that you're fronting at the moment.
1: Yeah, sure. So my main gig is a band called Living in the Seventies. And we're sort of based on the Queensland, New South Wales border. Uh, So the majority of our gigs are three hours north, three hours south. So that sort of encapsulates in the south, Coffs Harbour and that area, the mid-north coast, and then up to the Sunshine Coast, Noosa, those areas. Mm-hmm. Maybe once or twice a year we break out of that, go up to Bundaberg and then go down to Sydney and Wollongong. Um, the band's about... I want to say five years old, around about five years, just a little bit over, I think. And yeah, it's just built to a point where it's a hundred plus shows a year, uh, thousand kilometers a week. And yeah, it's just been, it's been really good. It's been very successful, and the demand is is growing, especially coming out of this. Uh, we have got venues contacting me and agents, big agencies, uh, contacting about getting there because there's a lot of pubs and clubs that want to jumpstart post the big C. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of like the quick, the quick wrap off, wrap up of it. And outside of that, there's the odd solo gigs and and weddings and functions and that sort of thing. But that that really dictates. The majority of my time, the waking hours—that's called.
0: Yeah, I've I've loved watching you uh, develop this over the last little while, and as I mentioned, like your work ethic is really inspiring. How you you work this? Because I mean, there's so many great musicians in the world. Not every musician has the the organizational chops to to build a career. It's what has helped you develop the business side of things for you?
1: I guess it's it's tenacity. It's focus. It's kind of having every day knowing that you've got something to do that. Um, I think I have a mantra or well, maybe it's not a mantra, but just a saying that every day that you sit around doing nothing is probably an empty date in the calendar. Mm-hmm. So if if you decide, okay, today I'm going to switch off, I'm going to turn off the email and I'm going to just enjoy the day out or whatever, then you have to be willing to say that that could be a missed opportunity. And getting the balance of that is really important. Um, there's times when I'm out to lunch with my wife and the phone will ring when the email will go off and I'm like, oh, I always seem to be on my phone. So um, yeah. there is a balance to be struck. So turning the phone off for a couple of hours here and there is okay. But in our industry, it's kind of like if you snooze, you lose because if a uh, you have to assume you're not the only person who gets the offer for the gig, mm-hmm. right? So it's usually the first in you can secure the date. So in my experience in hotel management and booking entertainment in that is that you could wait a day, two, three days for a musician or entertainer to get back to you. Um, So if the first person that gets back to you within five minutes, they're almost guaranteed the job. You know, they're like, okay, yep, that's easy because the job of a venue manager or an entertainment manager or a booking agent is to fill the diary and if you can fill it if you can fill all these spaces in the first five minutes, then who wouldn't want to do that? Who wants to sit around waiting for a phone call back? So, yeah, I really make sure that I'm in a position where I can respond very quickly with a yes or a no. Um, It's very important to respond with no's as well Mm -hmm. um, because it makes that job a lot easier for the person on the other end. But not just a no, um, I always respond with a no, but I can do these dates. Okay. So it's always like giving, giving them an option, and almost streamlining their job at the same time. Um, so a lot of the time they'll go, Oh yeah, cool, thanks, but I'll take yeah, I'll take two of those dates. Okay. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, in six months' time or eight months' time, I've got that weekend worked out. Yeah. Uh, so it's a lot of trying to find those really. Short those shortcuts um, to getting bookings. So never just one-word replies don't work. They don't build rapport. Um, just asking people how they are, all those sorts of things, personable things, building, I said, <coughs> rapport with your clients, with your venues, and making their life easier by giving them options. Yeah, uh, that's sort of been a a secret and it's probably not a secret because i'm sure there's a lot of other people that do it out there but yeah just man be on it be quick yeah. and you'll you'll work you know
0: sure you mentioned um, things like venue management and booking so you've you're in a unique position that you've you've covered sort of both ends of of things tell me about what you learned from some of those roles
1: yeah i guess from the age of 18 i started working in pubs and it was a live music venue in southwest Sydney. And I'd also been going to live gigs in all that time. So, but I got a unique experience of seeing what makes a successful gig, what draws audiences, um, what engages audiences. And then I got to see the money side and what makes you a profit. Um, and it's not necessarily always the best acts yeah. that make the most amount of money. So uh just learning what that is has been, you, you can't, I can't think of any other way to learn that stuff than on the job. So that, that gig was about eight years and, you know, started at the bottom from being a glassy to a bottle shop attendant to a, you know, a 2IC. And then many, many years later after playing, music full time, I went back and did the same thing. So walked into a two IC job with ALH and, you know, one of the biggest hotel groups in the country Mm -hmm. and then my own, running my own pubs. And that was, that was good because I've seen how it's changed. So in 12 years, a lot happens, um, let alone, you know, in, in two years, Um, But, yeah, then I sort of ran the entertainment program at the Sands at Narrabeen and got sort of an insight into how it had changed because you can get very complacent 12 years of just doing the same thing. Even though you're continually trying to reinvent yourself, you kind of miss the nuances of the industry and take it a bit for granted. So, yeah, that that was really good to kind of see just from – just simple things like payment turnarounds and um, the things that work. And when you treat a musician a certain way, you get afforded a certain amount of uh, leeway when it comes to talking to them and communicating with them. So um, that whole thing of treat them how you want to be treated. And I think I've been really lucky, especially up here, the venues are, are Awesome. It's like what they were 20 years ago. It's really good. But uh, understanding how we're treated a lot of the time and not wanting to treat those musicians that way and treat them how, you know, make them feel appreciated and that they're a part of your success were went a long way to um, that venue turning around and being very successful very quickly.
0: Uh, yeah, Okay. I think we've all worked venues where you feel, as a musician, where you feel welcomed by the venue. Um, and sometimes when you don't, when it's like you're an inconvenience and it's uh, <laughs> it's a very different <laughs> yeah. atmosphere.
1: Yeah, go sit over there as far away from the people as possible <laughs> underneath yeah. that TV. And um, no, we're not going to turn the heater off. And you're like, just, yeah, yeah sure. those little things where. Um, and that and that comes down to the industry too it has been more about money for a long time sure than about what is actual best long term yeah yeah so and that's i guess that's why the venues up here they haven't quite caught up because they um they're still in that mode of entertainment and Atmosphere is still the biggest draw to their venue rather than poker machines and um, all this other stuff that sort of goes on in Sydney and and other places. Sure. So from your
0: perspective, what makes a a band or an entertainer attractive to an organisation?
1: Well, I can only speak for myself and, and, and premise that by that a lot of other venues aren't looking for the same sort of things. But for me, the first thing is can the band, without anybody knowing it, sell the night for me? Mm-hmm. And the first thing that that comes down to is the band name. So does, do they have some weird and wacky name that I have to put a paragraph worth underneath the promo to explain what the band is and what they do? Um, so that was kind of the inspiration for me to do the musicians into which we, um, which I did during lockdown one. And that was just to kind of share some of these things. So yeah, when you're coming up with a band name, you got to think of it as not being smart, not being funny, not being an in-joke like all those sorts of things, you have to think of it uh, from a marketing perspective. Uh-huh. So you wouldn't say, for instance, take your situation with the Cold Chisel show. Yeah. You wouldn't call it, um, my time to, um, you know, My Time to Cry. Yeah. You know, or some other Cold Chisel deep cut. Yeah, yeah, You'd yeah. call it the Cold Chisel show or Jimmy Barnes and the Cold Chisel show or... Yeah. You know, things that people immediately identify with some of their biggest hits or whatever. So don't... I I would say don't try and be smart. Don't try and be funny. Just think of it as if you've got one or two words to sell the band, that should be the band name mm-hmm. um, and take your time. Uh, so that would be my first sort of advice is that's just... Man, that's free marketing, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um The other thing is that a good balance between songs that you like and songs that the audience is going to like Mm -hmm. because you need to still have fun yourself because if you're having fun, other people have fun. So set list is important. Take a look at what other people are doing. Um, We've had a situation up here with probably one of the best gigs on the Gold Coast now not really doing live bands because... A lot of the bands all have the same set list. So from week to week, the the managers and the people on the board of the club who are there every weekend are going, well, didn't we have this band last week? And they're like, no, it's a different band. Well, they're playing the same songs. Mm. So it's trying to carve out something that's a little bit different while still maintaining the songs that are going to drag a crowd in or going to fill the dance floor, keep people drinking, whatever. Yeah. Um, So that's another thing to really take into account. Um, I think they're sort of the two main things. And then, look, if you don't have the money to invest in quality sound, then hire in the interim. Make sure you have good production, good lighting. A lot of times you see bands with PAs from the 80s, you know, big carpeted boxes on rickety stands that are scratched up Uh and a couple of lights that aren't really lighting anything up or doing anything. So they're they're the important things um, from just that perspective of perception and what you see and what people think when, number one, you get the gig and then when you do the gig. I think they're sort of the core things that are important. For most, for most venues anyway, and from my perspective, as what I want to see as well. Sure, sure.
0: Hey, you mentioned um, the musicians in, and you've mentioned the big C. So, uh, so we're talking about COVID, how it's really ravaged <laughs> yeah. not just the live music industry, but but so many aspects of life. Um, as we record, it is the end of September, twenty twenty one. Who knows what the next few months looks like for us here in Australia? There's there's some promising signs, and then there's some steps backwards. It feels like it's been this uh, this kind of circular dance we've been doing for a couple of years. But but that said, um, you've you've been really proactive in doing a few things during COVID in terms of your own performance and some community building. So the Musicians In was an online, a live online chat, which. Um, that's how I we really met face to face or screen to screen at least after following <laughs> each other online and got to meet people like Gabor um, from the super fun awesome happy time pedal show um, who's now co-hosting the iconic albums with with you and I as well um, which has been yeah. awesome so tell me about some of those things that you that you've that you did do during COVID during lockdown the different lockdowns to keep engaged and and keep. Um, keep your hand in business.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I think when we got shut down, it was just an absolute shock straight away. Uh, we just sort of went, everything's gone. How yeah. long is this going to last? And I can't sit idle. I don't know what it is, but I just I can't sit idle. So immediately I started to see these things pop up, live streams. Insta TV, mm-hmm. uh, first one was Keith Urban. Okay. In his um, storage space, he set up a little live thing and his production head of production was just mixing tracks that he could sing and play along to. And I thought, I can do that. No worries at all, I can do that. And so I set about doing that and it started with just acoustic and looping, which was what my solo show was. Yeah. And then moved on to taking, same thing, taking live recordings from living in the 70s and turning them into backing tracks. Because uh, I have a mixer, which is the Soundcraft UE24R, and you can multi-track record to a USB device. Um, so I would occasionally for promo just record gigs. So I had s- dozens of sets worth of songs that I could mix down to tracks and then it went from a phone to cameras and switching and all that sort of stuff and it was just a thing that I could bury myself in that was filled up my time, gave me a purpose and helped me engage with people who were stuck at home and maybe couldn't occupy their time as well as I could and and then The Musicians In came from going on, it started with Doug DeJong uh, Make Some Noise and I went on his show a couple of times and I had a couple of years ago I had sort of mapped out an idea for a podcast uh, but just never had really time to develop it and that's sort of what The Musicians In became, uh, that idea. So it was kind of like a communal like group help advice thing on the music industry where um, we could share the things that we've learnt and help the next generation sort of coming through, traverse uh, all the things that take a lot of years to learn and a lot of mistakes to, you know, to realise the right way or maybe it's not necessarily the right way, it's the right way for you. Um, so yeah, it was just, and it was a good excuse to hang out with friends, meet new people and, uh, yeah. And I think, I think we did 25 episodes. I should have probably looked that up before (laughs) it came on. Um, but yeah, around 25 episodes and everything from advice for singers and, Uh, advice like marketing and I had yourself and Stevie Taylor on advice and setting up podcasts and uh, all that sort of thing. And yeah, it just became a really good Wednesday night hang. And uh, then I have all of this back catalog of stuff for that. People can go back and have a look at that if they're starting post COVID and thinking, all right, I want to I want to do something, and I want to go out there guns blazing. That there's a little bit of um, help there for them to to get out there and get it done quicker, perhaps. Well,
0: yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. I love the the information side of it was cool, but just the sense of community building. I love that you were spearheading uh, an avenue for that for so many people.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun and gave me a chance to you know talk. I guess let's just use. Face to face as the descriptor. Um, people I hadn't seen for a long time. I moved up from Sydney uh five years prior to that. So there's a lot of times where I hadn't seen people um in all of that time. So it was good to sort of touch base with them and find out how they were going. And you know, just push their their things too and I also had a segment on that which was to try and expose some new stuff out there because uh, I'm always I'm always looking for something new, something I haven't heard or seen uh, and that was probably one of the biggest challenges. Like all these musos trying to get them to, oh, what's something new you're listening to or what's something new you've discovered and it was it wasn't something that, i found people were really doing seeking out new music or new um you know new podcasts or or whatever they were we kind of get stuck where we where we're comfortable you know we're just sticking the same bands and the whether they have a new album come out we either do or don't listen to that uh yeah that that was really interesting to try and challenge them to go and find something new that they would like and because I think it's important for all of us to, to kind of stay up with what's happening and what's relevant to the younger generation so there isn't such a huge gap as there may have been between us and the generations before us. This
0: episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott, ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and the McNally Smith College of Music. I was one of the beta testers for the course and can say as a music educator, I was really impressed by the logical sequence of learning. The course has also been endorsed by players such as Brett Garson and Greg Cup. For more details, check out the links in our show notes. We've been getting to know you through the iconic albums. Um, Yeah, you've been bringing some of your favourite records and and all the discussions that ensues has been cool. But, um, yeah, growing up, who were some of the guitar players that started the spark for you?
1: Oh, man, we had so much music in our house growing up. And I'm talking Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, Little Bit of the Stones, The Doobies, ZZ Tops, just... Like there was guitar everywhere. Yeah. Um, And would, my dad and I would have record night on Monday nights when mum went out to work and, yeah, we'd just spin records for hours and TV. I know we've brought it up on the Iconic Albums podcast a few times how much music television we had growing up Yeah. between uh, – Countdown and sounds and hey hey it's Saturday and smash hits and rage, there was just so many, so many music shows and then we had recovery when we were teenagers or maybe yeah 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 late late teens, yeah. so it's just exposure to to all kinds of music all the time, um, and as as far as as long as I can remember I wanted to play guitar so it's always air guitar. There was the Neighbourhood Kids, we had a, a made-up band, like a fake band, <laughs> Yeah. where we just took, like, sticks from the backyard, like pieces of wood, and cut out cardboard shapes awesome. and put elastic bands across them. Yeah. And we'd just be in a friend's garage miming to, to songs like we are a real band. Yeah, cool. Um, cardboard boxes as drums and hitting them with chopsticks. and Yeah. Like, yeah. What, what was
0: on the set list for the... Uh- for the air guitar band.
1: Do you know it's funny? There's only one. There was obviously the Police, uh, Outlanders, D.R. Moore. I think Roxanne was one Yeah. on that. But the one song that sticks out, because it's the most ridiculous song ever, which is why it's so memorable, was Putting on the Ritz. <laughs> and we used to, like, act out some choreographed <laughs> thing where we were doing the steps from the video Beautiful. clip. yeah. And... Like it's not a guitar song at all. No. It's um it's this weird avant-garde pop song. Yeah. Um with a strange video clip. But for some reason we that group of friends, we just gravitated to that song. So we kind of reenacted it. It was and, a great uh, song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that that's kind of my earliest memories of that. And then uh then I discovered Clapton and Satriani and all of that sort of in the late 80s. Okay. And the local guys, Diesel. Diesel was a big influence for a long time and still is. Mm -hmm. Um, I think everyone knows how good he is, um, but I think sometimes he kind of gets forgotten uh, in the mainstream. But, man, as a singer and a guitar player and somebody who is just championing the the gear stuff, you know? Like, the guy is so into it from that perspective that that's inspiring, you know, for me. Uh-huh, yep. It still is.
0: Yeah, cool. Um, so, Diesel's still an influence. Who, who in recent times have you been checking
1: out and inspired by? <sighs> Guys like Tyler Bryant, um, Gary Clark Jr., those types of uh, guys that are kind of—I wouldn't say they—they are pushing the boundaries of their their genres. So Gary Clark can go from like the dirtiest, swampiest blues mm. to a to a reggae ska thing to a really sweet R and B tune, yep. but there's guitar on everything, uh, and it's very different. And he's embraced old stuff to make new stuff. And Tyler Bryant, very similar, uh, very edgy guitar player, uh, lots of fuzz. Things that are just inspiring me to look at other sounds that I wouldn't normally choose myself and how to make them work from either a creative perspective or a live perspective um yeah so there's lots of lot lots of those sorts of things and then i'm really into that i don't know how to really describe it it's kind of roots rock soul so things like nathaniel ratliff and the night sweats Mm -hmm. and those types jason isbell um, which is a bit more country, but he's got some edgy stuff. And, yeah, bands like St Paul and the Broken Bones, Vintage Trouble. Yeah, so from the new stuff, that's it's, it's still in that rock, blues, soul kind of area, but um, I think it's just people that are bringing the old sound to the new generation with their own spin on it. It's really expi- inspiring.
0: Yeah, that's exciting thing to hear for sure for sure hey let's talk um let's talk guitars yeah cool on your um on your live stream on the weekend you're playing a very sweet uh les paul jr type of thing um and i know you've been playing i know you kind of did gibson style guitars of late but your your collection's pretty broad what's um I don't know, let's start. What's your go-to at the moment? So when you've got a bunch of gigs, you've got to take a few guitars, what What are you probably going to take?
1: Um, i got a 2006 Made in Japan Epiphone uh, Les Paul Special, uh, two P90s, just a simple slab yeah. guitar. It's like a trans red, uh, just that typical guitar. You know, it's got low-output P90s, I think they're they both around 7K, so it can do funky, clean, country, you know, stuff and very telly-esque but just different enough to not be telly. Mm-hmm. And then when you hit the overdrive channel of your amp or a pedal, uh, it can do really great crunch sound like AC-DC uh, for Days, Angels, all that sort of stuff that's in the 70s set, Radar Love, all the rockers at the end, Ballroom Blitz. It's just, it can cover my whole set. So if I had to take one guitar to do four hours worth of a mixed 70s cover set from Neil Young yeah. to King Harvest to Joe Walsh and Status Quo, like the whole gambit, I could do the whole gig with that that guitar and that's, Almost one of the cheapest guitars I own, Uh which, you know, when you find a good guitar, it doesn't really matter the price. Um, And it's just, it hasn't needed to be done. Nothing has been needed to be done to it. Okay. It's just perfect out of the box. It holds tune great. Yeah. Um, The electronics are great. Just, yeah. And that was just bought secondhand off reverb, I think, Mm -hmm. sight unseen. So it made it in the post uh yeah, big fan of um made in Japan's which uh I did enjoy the episode for me which was last week um talking about the MIJs and and those guitars. So yeah, that's cool. my number one. Number 2 is another 2006 actually. It's it's actually a Gibson USA 335 um ES335 fat neck. It's got that really chunky kind of baseball bat style neck. And that guitar was the inspiration for my change from where I was guitar-wise eight or nine years ago, which was Fenders and Music Man's. Um, I picked up this guitar with a huge neck and thought, there's no way I'm going to like this. And then it just felt comfortable. So it ruined every other guitar I owned at the time. (laughs) Uh, And I got rid of all the... Yeah, it's funny. I was struggling with the Music Mans for a few months, and I had two Axis sports, uh, the old EVH ones. Yeah. Uh, but I was finding that just playing chords was becoming very difficult. The string spacing, and I couldn't put my finger on why. And then when I did come across that 335 and the string spacing and the neck. Um, the just the the neck feel and just everything was more comfortable. So all of a sudden, I couldn't play the Music Man's anymore, and so I sold those and just started my search for these Gibsons with the bigger necks. I think the next one is a Bacchus uh, Classic, fifty-eight gold top, and again, the thing weighs a ton, but it sounds great. Recently, I've upgraded the pickups in that to Briley Alnico 2s. Uh, cause, yeah, because the original ones are just a little bit too hot. They were good when I was just playing rock, but um, I've really moved to the lower output pickups now because you're able to still get that heavy rock sound from them and they're even better for that in some respects than high output humbuckers. Uh, But it gives you that ability to and versatility to play super clean um, and run from that through crunch to, like, really heavy rock. Um, So, yeah, that's sort of the the big three. And then the one you mentioned, which I just put, um, again, because the Gibson P90s in that, it's a, I think it's a a 2012, 2011, Sorry, 2011 Les Paul Double Cut Special. And the thing that's different about that guitar is that it's a solid colour. A lot of those yellow ones are TV yellow. Yeah. So they're kind of transparent and you can see the grain. But uh, this is a solid yellow, kind of rare. Gibson didn't do many of them. And, yeah, with the output of those P90s, I just put some real low output Jason Lola 50s wine, P90s in that and, yeah, super clean and it now is very similar Uh to to Little Red, the Epiphone. Okay, yeah. Nice, man. But that was one of those guitars, man, I've always lusted after a yellow double cut Uh with two P90s. Uh, I think, first of all, it was Steve Stevens playing one on Live at the Hard Rock, which was a special many, many years ago, an all-star band, Steve Stevens on guitar, um, Duff McKagan, Matt Sorum, uh, and then they just played with a whole bunch of different singers, Sheryl Crow, Seal, Billy Idol, and he played one on that. And then the other one was Susie DiMarchi in uh, Baby Animals clip. I think it's Early Warning that she's playing the Yellow Double Cut special. And I've always lusted after it and never came across one that was affordable and then walked into Guitar Brothers in Brisbane on the way to a gig one day and it was on the wall. And (laughs) actually my bass player, Charlie, shout out to Charlie, he grabbed it off the wall and started playing it first. (laughs) And I walked up and I hadn't even seen it and I saw him playing and I went, just snatched it out of his hand. I go, "That's mine." <laughs> Took it straight to the counter. Didn't even plug it in. Oh, really? I think I played. No, nah, I think I played an E chord and it sounded good unplugged. And I went, "That'll do me." And uh, yeah, that's awesome. Went, went and bought it. Yeah. So yeah, they're the they're the main ones. Yeah, yeah. For electric, yeah. So acoustics and another another story. Sure. That's cool, man. That's cool.
0: I, I know you've um, I know you're a big Van Halen fan, and you. Did your own striped EVH tribute um, about about twelve months ago, I guess, when when Eddie sadly passed.
1: Yeah, that's right. I um, it's a look. When he passed away, it was it was just yeah, it hurt a lot. Uh, big Eddie fan from for a lot of years, and um, very lucky to say that I got to meet him on that ninety eight tour and have a bit of a chat. Uh, which is, you know, I'll never forget that. But it's funny that that COVID one lockdown one, sales went crazy of everything. You couldn't, if you didn't buy something in that first two weeks, most music stores just sold out of every stock that they had, and distributors sold out of the Eddie so then, stuff. You mean? Well, no, just in general. Oh, but okay. then when then when Eddie passed, whatever was left, gone. Mm. Like. In a in an instant, so I remember buying one of the EVH striped guitars online and getting a phone call the next day from the music shop going, "I'm really sorry, that guitar sold seven times yesterday. The right. one that had one guitar in stock, and that they sold it seven times. So um, I didn't get it, and I went. You know what? It would mean more if I just built my own. Uh-huh. So I went. I went searching for a Fender Strat basically with a Floyd Rose yeah, and and came across one. I think it was on Reverb as well. And it's just a Japanese Fender. It's kind of like a, it had Damasio bridge humbucker in it and a Godo, like all Godo hardware. Yeah. And it's like an early 2010, somewhere around there, Floyd Rose Strat. So yeah, I did that. And it had a matte black finish, which was, made it really easy to just take a top coat off. And yeah, then I just sat with a photo, taped it all off and spent a few days spraying it and putting together and yeah, it's a really great guitar. It's um the single coils aren't very stratty. It's it's it can be a thing with some of those Japanese strats. Um they can sound just I guess I don't even I don't even know. It's like very homogenised sound. They don't have that real bell-like Stratty character, but they balance really well with the Air Norton that is the humbucker okay. yeah, in right. the bridge. And it does... Yeah, it does all those Van Halen things and it looks it looks awesome. Um, yeah, it was, it was a good little pet project to do at, at a kind of difficult time.
0: Sure. Nice, man. Very cool. We'll have to... Um I know we're going to look at a Van Halen record with iconic albums, so I want to hear that. We'll save the story of how you met Eddie. That that's intriguing.
1: Yeah, cool. I look forward to it.
0: Yeah, man. Hey, amps and, and and pedals. I know your pedal board's always evolving, um, like most of us, I guess, but <laughs> but yours is pretty pretty nuts. I love that. What um what is some of your go-to amps and, and pedals that you dig?
1: Uh at the moment for a long time I used an MI Audio Iron Duke. I uh, used that for like eight years, and mm-hmm. it was a. Re- it's a killer amp for anyone looking for a very versatile rock amp. That thing, I, I couldn't recommend any other amp more highly. They're hard to come by, but Michael is still building them, so you can order them. Mm-hmm. Ridiculously affordable for an all valve four channel head, like under two thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. F- fifty watts, crazy good. Yeah, um, but recently. I came across the Mesa Boogie Fillmore series, so I've been using a Fillmore Fifty, which is it just does everything I want. I'm I'm a channel switching amp guy, so I really like to be able to switch channels between clean, dirty, or two clean channels, one set louder than the other for rhythm and lead, uh, and have those channels share DNA. Yeah, right. Uh, a lot of the time when you get a channel switching app, you have they either have a really good clean sound and then when you switch to the dirty sound, it, it's not good yeah. or it's got a shared EQ where you can't dial in that that DNA that you want to go through both sounds. Yeah. I don't want a yeah. drastically different clean to dirty sound. Mm-hmm. I just want to be able to slowly go through gain stages and everything, the bottom end stays the same, the top end stays the same, all that sort of stuff. So to do that, the Mesa Fillmore is great because it's two clone channels, completely independent. Uh, so I can have a lead channel and a rhythm channel. Um, for those reasons, just to give people some context of that, I mix as well as play and sing. So I do all the PA as well. So there's not someone there to push the fader up. mm mm-hmm when I hit a lead break. So I need, it's around about a 30% volume boost for your lead channels to cut through. Um, So that's why I need a two-channel amp so that I can do that. I can make one rhythm, one lead and boost up. Uh, Because single-channel amps... Once you hit them with a few overdrives, they won't get any louder no matter what you hit with a boost. They'll just get more distorted and compressed. Yeah, yeah. So that's the reason why I do that. And the Mesa does that perfectly. And 50 watts, we don't play super loud. I don't need it. Um, And so if I need it, I've got another 212 cab that I can plug into that. Um, I run to the PA now with a... Two Notes Torpedo Cab M mm-hmm. because, again, it just saves me every night setting up a mic and making sure it's in the same spot. Yeah, yeah. This way I get the consistency um, direct to PA uh, and that's that's been great. Um, Pedals-wise, yeah, I do chop and change a lot. Um, but at the core of everything at the moment and has been for a couple of years is the Line 6 HX Stomp. I'm only using delays and modulations in that. Okay. I'm not using any amp sims, although it's there as a backup. So if my amp goes down at a gig, yep. I can run direct to the PA and I've got a couple of patches set up where I can get through the gig. Yeah, so cool. it's kind of like a fail safe. Um, I'm using a MIDI switcher now, like a bypass loop switcher, so I can do one, one hit. Yeah. You know, if I hit one button on the MIDI switcher, then it turns a whole bunch of things on and off and I can go from rhythm to lead in a song with the one touch of a button, whereas in the past I've had the tap dance, hit the channel changer, hit the delay, hit, you know, this and that. Now I've got it set up so it does all one thing with one switch. Um, And then drive pedals, I still use external drive pedals. I don't use the HX. Uh, Clon KTR, which... I've had for a long time and sorry, folks, I paid like $300 for mine <laughs> eight, nine years ago, something like that. Yeah. Um, and a pedal I always come back to is a full-tone GT500, which is a dual overdrive
0: okay, yeah, with yeah. a
1: boost overdrive on one side and a distortion on the other. And you can use them separately or you can slam one into the other and switch which way you want it to go. Uh, I loved that pedal for a long time when I was using orange amps. Uh, but then when I switched to the MI, it didn't work all that well with it. So I kind of sold it on. But it works really good with the Mesa. Mm-hmm. And I have a Churia Tone Silver Jubilee, which is my backup. And it works really good with that. Uh, and the reason why I like the GT500 is it has a wah inductor as its mid-range pot. Okay, wow. Yeah, so they use the full-tone, their hot pot, whatever that is for their wah pedal, they use that as the mid-range on the distortion side. So it's got a huge range. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, sort of back to the channel switching thing is when I hit an overdrive pedal, I want it to retain all the low end, the mid-range character and the top end. If I want to push the mids, I can. Uh, so, yeah, I'm always looking for overdrive pedals that retain that character. So that whole buzzword of transparent overdrive, mm-hmm. it's been something I've been a part of for such a long time because I don't want to hit something like a Tube Screamer where I lose all my bottom end and just gives me this mid-range push. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, over a long time, I guess, it comes from playing in trios. Okay. You know, you've got to sound bigger and uh, more so now... Um, in the '70s show, I don't need that because I have a great, two great bass players, and I have a keyboard player filling this sonic space, so I don't have to be. I can find my little sonic space, which is different than it's ever been. So there's a lot less low end. I think on the Mesa, almost the bass is turned off. Oh, on okay. That now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that just gives you an idea of, of how you got to find your. You place in. Yeah. And then there's always, you know, wahs and um, I'm actually carrying a case around at the moment and I call it the octave box. Okay. Because <laughs> on any given night, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll use this pedal. So it's a little um case and in it has a Roger Mayer Octavia. Nice. So a fuzz octave. Yeah. It's got a Pog 2. Mm-hmm. And it's got a boss OC2. So it's uh like any given night I'll just I feel like that go to the case and pull one of them out that's and plug cool. it in. Um, so <laughs> we played a game last week where it was like, how many octaves in this case? And I think there's like eight, you <laughs> know. Well, like, It's quite funny. All right. That that's that's pretty much it. And yeah, yeah. like for solo gigs, I'm I was using the same rig, but I've recently just switched. To a little pedal board with a Boss GT1 on it because mm-hmm. it allows me to use the expression pedal to bring delays in and out. Okay, yeah, cool. Um, and yeah, that and a loop, uh, the old RC30 loop station. And uh, yeah, that that gets me gets me by for the majority of all my gigs now. Yeah, nice, nice. And
0: yeah, um, yeah as I said, there's there's always some other fun stuff coming in out of your board. So I love it.
1: Yeah, and I don't hoard either. It's like if I'm not using it, yeah. I sell it, um, which is probably the reason why that's. I think that's my third full tone GT five hundred. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I've had. Um, I've got a old Jim Dunlop Roto vibe coming this week. Yeah, and I think that's my fourth one of those. Okay. <laughs> so it's just things come and go. It's like a turnstile. Like, oh, yeah. I haven't used that for five years. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get another one of those. Okay. But uh, yeah, as for Having, if I ever have a YouTube channel, there's no chance of there being a shelf behind me with color-coded okay. pedals. <laughs> like, there'll be no Gabor-style Dod wall yeah. or um, Josh Scott with um, you know all these line sex uh, behind him yeah. and all of that. I just, yeah, it's kind of as soon as I see it sitting there, um, I kind of go, oh, that needs to be played. Someone needs to have that. Mm-hmm. And I went through that last night with my um old 87 ibanez i've been thinking about selling that uh-huh. um because it just sits there doing nothing uh, it's a, more a nostalgia piece but i plugged it in last night and i was like yeah i'm not selling this okay. this is a really great guitar
0: oh, that's cool man hey yeah. rob what's the best way for people to uh, keep up to date with you
1: Oh, look, the busiest place I am is with Living in the 70s. So Living in the 70s live on Facebook, you can keep up to date where with me and where that band is going. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, if this live stream thing continues, which I've got one this afternoon, uh, YouTube Rob Rhodes Music um, is the channel name. So you can check out some of my live streams there where I get uh, get crazy with all of the gear set up in my little... Back shed here yeah nice
0: man that's great well Rob, thanks for coming on the show it's been uh like i said it's been awesome doing the albums but it's been really cool to get you in for a one-on-one chat as well
1: thanks matt it's really been great uh to be here and just talk about me <laughs> <laughs> god man you know it, it's it's been um it's been a really great time as much as all of the negativity from this last almost two years—it's mm-hmm. uh, been fantastic to be able to connect with people like yourself and and get out there and and have people share their stories and engage. Like yeah. I think the music industry has pivoted—that's the buzzword of the last uh-huh. two years—and yep. has engaged way more. And I'm hoping that uh, we all benefit from that moving forward, and it and the music industry can recover from. Well, it's been an absolute horrific couple of years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Rob, and thanks for thanks for your part in that in building some communities as well, man.
1: Cheers, mate. It's kept me sane. And hopefully it's kept a few other people sane too. Yeah, cool. Thanks, well, cheers, Rob. Mate. Bye.
0: All right, there you go. Rob Rhodes on the Guitar Speak podcast. This time in the interview chair. And great to have Rob on his fantastic guy and a brilliant musician so great to glean from him all that wisdom today of course you can hear rob alongside gabor jessica and myself in the weekly iconic albums episodes and that's where we choose and discuss some of the most influential guitar records in our collections my thanks also to joe todd and the team at fretboard biology the comprehensive online guitar course—they've been great sponsors throughout the year. Their links are in our show notes for you to check out. All right, that's about it for the show. My name is Matt Wakeling. Thanks for joining me on the Guitar Speak podcast. Now, I would love to leave you with some words of wisdom from the German shredding maestro Michael Schenker of the Scorpions, UFO, and MSG, who once told me, "Keep rocking, keep on rocking, keep on rocking." Indeed. I'll catch you next time. Bye now.